Good morning and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Monday. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you probably uh, have seen uh, my newsletter today, um, misreading the politics of normalcy. And I start off with, with various scenes from around the country, circa 2021. In Kansas, anti-vax protesters are showing up to municipal meetings wearing yellow stars because they're just like the Jewish victims of the Holocaust, I guess. Um, also, in answer to the question, what would Jesus do uh, down in San Antonio? Worshippers at a service at the Cornerstone Church chanted, let's go, Brandon. This is during a church service. Of course, that's the code for the obscenity directed at the president, um, which was developed by nine-year-olds who run the Republican Party. Uh, meanwhile, uh, retired General Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor to the president of the United States, declared that if we're going to have one nation under God, um, which we must, we have to have one religion, one nation under God and one religion under God. Uh, <clears throat> Michael Flynn did not specify exactly uh, what religion that would be. But we also are getting a bunch of other memos from the uh, Trump years. We have uh, uh, news about the way the Trump White House interfered with the CDC's COVID planning in the early crucial days of the deadly pandemic. We're also learning that there was yet another memo outlining a strategy for overturning the presidential election. Uh, that one was written by Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis, one of the great legal minds uh, surrounding the president after the election, was uh, emailed by the former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to Vice President Mike Pence's top aide. Um, and uh, we have polls out showing that as many as 21 million Americans think that the use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. And I'll try to get your head around that. And in case you think that that's just sort of a one-off, um, yesterday morning on Sunday, Wyoming Senator John Barrasso, who's a kind of a, an establishment figure, senior member of the Senate, kind of until five minutes ago, kind of one of your normies in the Republican Party, uh, was on uh, with uh, George Stephanopoulos. And George Stephanopoulos gave him four separate opportunities to distance himself from Donald Trump's defense of the chance to hang Mike Pence on January 6th. Uh, this is from the Jonathan Carl book, uh, where we actually now have the audio of, of, of Donald Trump saying, yeah, it was, it was, it was, you know, completely common sense. People were saying hang Mike Pence because he should never advance that, uh, that vote to, uh, to, to Congress. So, George Stephanopoulos is asking this senior Republican member of the United States Senate from Wyoming, um, well, what do you think about this? He gives him four opportunities. Just let's play a little bit of the soundbite of the, of, of the back and forth. Stephanopoulos, again, asks him, what do you make of Donald Trump saying that it is, you know, defending hang Mike Pence? This is the way Barrasso responds. To the party, he's an enduring force. Elections are about the future, not the past. And that's what we saw in Virginia and all across the country. And the Republican policies and the Trump policies of a strong economy and American energy, not begging Vladimir Putin to produce more oil, which is what Joe Biden is doing. Those are policies that we're going to continue to run on in the future. So you have no problem with the president saying uh, hang Mike Pence is common sense? I was with Mike Pence in just... the Senate chamber during January 6th. And what happened was they quickly got yeah. Vice President yeah. Pence 
out of there, certainly a lot faster than they removed the senators. I believed he was safe the whole time. Um, I didn't hear any of those chants. I don't believe that he did either. And Vice President Pence came back into the chamber that night and certified the election. So Stephanopoulos says, so he says, hang Mike Pence is common sense. Can your party tolerate a leader who defends murderous chants against his own vice president? Barroso says, well, let me just say the Republican Party is incredibly united right now. So in case there's any ambiguity, is any question in your mind um, about whether or not the Republicans are indelibly bonded to uh, the former guy? I mean, this is another indication. Also, just once again, moving the Overton window of what is acceptable. Uh, now, obviously, Barrasso is not advocating violence, but he's tolerating uh, the threats of violence. And this has become more and more, I hate to use the word, normalized. Uh, last week, the New York Times had a long story. Uh, in effect, the Republican Party is mainstreaming menace as a political tool. And you really are seeing that. And I guess one of the points that I make, if you, and I'm not going to repeat the whole uh, newsletter today, but is that you know, a lot of us believe that uh, post-Trump, we would have a return to normalcy and Joe Biden campaigned as the normal guy as president. But maybe this misreads this, the situation rather fundamentally because these are profoundly abnormal times. And so maybe if you try to be the normal guy or practice normal politics during abnormal times, it's a formula for political disaster. And of course, we have the split screen today of the president signing the big infrastructure bill, which polls well, but which nobody really knows what's in it. And let's be honest about it. And that's that's one screen. The other screen is, of course, Steve Bannon uh, turning himself in, doing his Perp Walk 2.0. And uh, I, I think it's kind of an indication of the two two styles of politics where watch, uh, if, you, if you think that Steve Bannon is in any way chagrined by all of this, watch how he brazens this out. He's got a plan. He knows that you know, his goal is is not necessarily to beat Democrats, just a, I think that his, his memorable phrase was flood the zone with shit. And indeed he has, and he has succeeded. So you still have Joe Biden and the Democrats playing normal politics, whereas Steve Bannon, kind of a symbol of the, I, I think it was Sean Illing of uh, Vox called it the manufactured nihilism of our time. Anyway, that's, that's, that's in our newsletter today. Okay, our guest today. Tim Mack, Washington investigative correspondent for NPR, author of a fascinating new book, Misfire Inside the Downfall of the NRA. And Tim Mack has covered the NRA for years. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it very much, Tim. Thanks so much for having me on. So let me just ask you the basic thing is, is has the has the NRA is there a downfall of the NRA? It's still there. It's still got lots of money. The people who are in charge are still in charge. Wayne LaPierre is still there. So when you say it, the, the downfall of the NRA, when did it fall down? Well, it's it's in it, the most serious crisis it's ever seen and experienced over the last 150 years. It's got members of its own organization revolting, protests from its own board of directors, serious financial troubles to the point that in 2018 it almost couldn't make payroll. And with multiple investigations going on, including the New York Attorney General's, uh, there's a real serious possibility that in the next year or a year and a half or so, the New York Attorney General could get what it's asked the court to do, which is to dissolve the NRA entirely. The New York Attorney General, after an 18-month investigation, asked the judge 
to shut down the organization because it had, it had identified tens of millions of dollars in miscon financial misconduct and inappropriate spending from the NRA over just a, a few short years. So I, I was really fascinated by some of the dazzling details that we discovered about Wayne LaPierre, the lavish spending on Italian suits, the private jets, the fine dining. Uh, I mean, this is a guy that was was making $200,000 in the mid-1990s, which is not chump change, to $2.2 million in 2018 and spent $275,000 on suits at a single Beverly Hills Emporium, including $39,000 on one day in 2015. That actually created a huge rift within the organization. And I never was really able to sort of parse out who was on what side of all of that. I mean, it really was very prominent members of the NRA, not on ideology, but seemed to be breaking apart on this issue of Wayne LaPierre and the spending. Yeah, that's right. You can't really understand the downfall of the NRA unless you understand Wayne LaPierre as a human being, right? And and it turns out, you know, the, the NRA being such a black box, I, I, I wasn't really sure what I'd find when I started writing this book. And I kind of peer in and it's so much weirder and stranger than I ever thought it would be. I mean, the book opens up with this scene at Wayne LaPierre's wedding in the late 90s. And he doesn't show up. He doesn't want to get married. He spent the whole week before telling his friends he doesn't really want this. And he's outside with his best man who says, I don't think you should get married today either. And his best man slaps a $100 bill on the dashboard and says, you know, we can we drive out of here right now. But he kind of goes through with it. He, go, he goes in and he gets kind of harangued into the ceremony by his bride. And then there, there's this really awkward, awkward ceremony that, that progresses out of that. He doesn't make eye contact with his bride. He's looking everywhere but across to her. And all these NRA luminaries are watching on, amazed at this terribly awkward and weird moment. And there's a reason I tell that anecdote, right? That, that so many of the NRA's current financial and legal problems stem from Wayne LaPierre's character personally, that so many people realized over time that if you bully Wayne LaPierre, you push him around enough, you yell at him long enough, he's going to approve what it is that you want, hmm. whether it's millions of dollars in sweetheart deals for contractors with, uh, with some sort of inside connection to Wayne LaPierre or golden parachutes for senior executives who leave the organization and get paid an immense amount of money to do basically nothing. And so, yes, this created a lot of rifts in the organization. One of those rifts is with a guy named Oliver North. Uh, you know, th there was a big financial problem, like I was saying, in 2018. So Wayne LaPierre reaches out to his old friend Oliver North, who, yeah. uh, as it happens, attended his wedding. Um, and Oliver North comes on, obviously totally committed to the Second Amendment as the NRA sees it. And... Uh, there becomes a big rift because they disagree on whether there should be a financial audit of the NRA. So how does he survive? This is my question, because you, you describe him as somebody that never makes eye contact, obviously very, very socially awkward, has all of this weird spending habits. And yet somehow he has survived all of these investigations, all of the coup attempts, all of the breaks with other very prominent members of the NRA. Why is he still there? And he doesn't like he doesn't like shooting either, which is astonishing. <laughs> not good at not good at handling firearms. There's this 
there's this uh, anecdote in Misfire about how he's out at the range for a video shoot and someone calls out to him. He swivels around really quickly and points the gun at the person who calls out to him. Oh, great. Um, you know, there's a joke inside the NRA that, you know, if you don't do well in your quarterly reports or whatever you're doing at work, you might have to go, quote, hunting with Wayne or shooting with Wayne. <laughs> Okay, so how how does he survive? I mean, how does you know what is what is the secret sauce there that he's that he's managed to go through, especially with all of the hits the NRA has taken, with all of the danger. I mean, the the, the organization, as you make clear, faces a real series of existential threats. At some point, any business organization that is in that much trouble is going to take a very very hard look at its CEO, and yet he's still freaking there. It's a really good question because. Uh, you know, uh, I've been asked repeatedly if he is who you describe him to be and who his closest friends describe him to be this weak willed, kind of deeply anxious, scared person, someone who hides behind curtains when things get too stressful in order to kind of comfort himself. How does he how does he lead the most powerful and controversial organization, arguably the most powerful and controversial organization in America? And I think the answer is that, you know, in his malleability, he's made himself dis indispensable mm. to all the powerful people around him, whether it's members of the board of directors who are making money off of serving uh, on the board of the NRA while supposedly uh, being charged to keep the organization accountable, whether it's lawyers who are making tens of millions, even more. For a long time, the advertising firm for the NRA which was a very powerful force in the NRA's uh, organization, making tens of millions of dollars every year from the NRA. He's, he's surrounded himself with people who are much more strong-willed than he is, uh, much more powerful than he is, uh, and which he relies on as a way to kind of prop up his existence as the head of the NRA. So obviously you have some really good sources within the NRA. And, and I think one of the most uh, devastating uh, revelations you have is that you have uh, some tapes uh, some of internal discussions, obviously very, very confidential internal discussions going back to 1999 after uh, the Columbine shooting as, as they were as they were strategizing. And of course, I'm not going to ask you how you got those tapes. But they are very revealing of kind of the way they were strategizing back. In, and I wanted to sort of do this chronologically, you know, working up to where we are right now. So let's just look. I, I have three sound bites. Um, again, this is back from 1990, uh, 1999. And then the first one is Wayne LaPierre. Um, and uh, the former president, Marion Hammer, and other officials are, are caught on tape making disparaging remarks and laughing about how rank-and-file activist members might act and be perceived if if the NRA's annual meeting was canceled after the Columbine shooting in 1999, because it was, weirdly enough, it was scheduled to be held in Denver about 10 miles away. So here, here's, here's the NRA folks talking about what do we do with this meeting right in the wake of the Columbine massacre. You know, the other problem is holding a member meeting without an exhibit hall. You know, yeah. The people you are most likely to get in that member meeting without an exhibit hall are the nuts. That's that, right. that made that point earlier. I agree. The fruitcakes are going to show up. If you pull down the exhibit hall, that's not going to leave anything for the media except the members meeting. And you're going to have the wackos with all kinds of... <laughs> 
crazy resolutions with all kinds of dressing like a bunch of hillbillies and idiots and and it's gonna it's gonna be the worst thing you can imagine. See, Tim, that's fascinating to me because you always kind of suspect that there's this this real contempt that some of these organizations have for their own members, but there it is. I mean, just laid out there. Yeah, that well, it's it's shocking to see just how freely they kind of disparage some of their own members when this is in private, right? So uh, you did a great job setting the scene. Um, this is top officials, Wayne LaPierre, executives, lobbyists, all huddling on this conference call um, right the day after Columbine, trying to figure out how to deal with this crisis. And as this conversation goes on, they start to kind of worry, well, what will happen if our own most radical members show up in Denver as planned? And they just kind of uh, start insulting them. And, and one-upping one another in the insult, you know? It's like, yeah, they're, they're helping. Even, they're, even, as yeah. even as instructive as the name-calling is the kind of laughter you hear in the background. As everyone else is kind of acknowledging just how much they dislike that segment of their own membership, which, by the way, they depend on every time they want to mobilize uh, their grassroots for political um, for a political movement or pressure on lawmakers. They depend on for fundraising. Uh, they depend on anytime they're trying to get anything done. Um, these are the people who who respond and react, and these are the people that they disparage so freely behind the scenes. So earlier in that call, um, the officials are talking about the media optics of canceling the meeting versus going forward with this annual meeting in the wake of Columbine in, in Denver. So the first voice you hear here is Wayne LaPierre explain the group has meeting insurance. And then the last voice is uh, NRA lobbyist named Jim Baker. We have meeting insurance. I just screw the insurance. The message that it will send is that the, even the NRA was brought to its knees and, and the media will have a field day with it. This is the same concern, obviously, that everybody has, is that at the same period where they're going to be burying these children, we're going to be having media within 10 miles of our convention center, the world's media, trying to run through the exhibit hall looking at kids fondling firearms, which is going to be a horrible, horrible, horrible juxtaposition. Well, that's interesting, Tim, because they, they get that, right? I mean, they understand how awkward this is. Did they, they went ahead with that meeting anyway, didn't they? They paired it back. Basically, yeah. they, they canceled what was called the exhibit hall, this big expo of guns and accessories. Um, but they did have a members meeting, which is what they were concerned about in that earlier clip. They were worried that, hey, if we cancel this just the nuts. guns expo, just the quote-unquote nuts would show up and start putting forward resolutions and start, you know, um, trying to kick out executives, which grassroots members of the NRA can do. Now, I have one more soundbite, which I think is the most fascinating, um, where, again, they're strategizing after the death of all these children uh, at, uh, at Columbine, and, and they briefly consider what would be a rather surprisingly different response, like, what if they created a victim's fund for the children and the one teacher who was killed? Um, and you can hear their ambivalence. So they're strategizing about, you know, how can the NRA, uh, you know, perhaps massage its image by reaching out and showing a little bit of compassion? Um, obviously, they didn't do this, but 
Here's this is about 58 seconds long. Is there something concrete that we can offer, not because guns are responsible, but because we care about these people? Is there anything? Does that look crass or uh, like a victims fund? Or yeah, we create a victims fund and, and we uh, we give the victim a million dollars or something like that. Uh, does that look bad or does it look? Uh, well, I mean that can be twisted too. I mean, why why are you giving money? You feel responsible? Well, you're true. It can be twisted, but we feel sympathetic and uh, respectful. I, I got to tell you, we got to think this thing through because if we duck tail and run, we're going to be accepting responsibility for what happened out there. That's that's one very good argument, Jim. On the other side, if you don't appear to be deferential in honoring the dead, you end up being a tremendous head who wouldn't duck tail and run. You know, so it, it's a double-edged sword. So in the end, Tim, the, the NRA pivoted to a pretty defiant stance, right, um, which really foreshadowed the strategy going forward after other high-profile shootings, which was never apology, never apologize, uh, never back off, you know, keep, keep the, you know, keep maximum pressure on because the, the NRA never wants to look weak. Well, that's what's so amazing about these secret tapes, right, that, they, that you see the wheels in motion. You see them thinking about a softer approach, and then you see them landing on what's going to be their strategy for the next 20-plus years after mass shootings. And you, know, you, you, you see this consideration of the softer approach, and then they come to the conclusion that if they concede anything, if they cancel their convention, if they create this million dollars victims fund, it will be as if they were taking responsibility or if they were accepting complicity in the Columbine tragedy. So let's fast forward to what I think is one of the real pivot points, and and you describe it uh, in some detail. Um, Their reaction to the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012, which I I think you think is one of the keys to the organization's decline. And it was a real, I I will admit, it was was a breaking point for me, Um, the just the thinking of all those children that were being killed. And at, at least in the beginning, they kind of were pretending that they were negotiating, right? I mean, in, in the in the beginning, the the shock and the horror was so great. Um, there was a a bipartisan universal background check bill brought by Senators Manchin and Toomey after uh, you know twenty three uh, you know killed in uh, in Newtown, Connecticut, twenty of them children, and um, so. Talk to me about that, because at first they were negotiating and then later shifted their tactics and mobilized against the bill, killing its chances. I mean, really decided to go hardcore on that. Well, you know, at at the time, there was this big tug of war inside the NRA between the lobbyists who are on the Hill trying to figure out legislative compromises and their messaging and fundraising and advertising arm, right? Which is there's always been this tension in the organization that. Uh, lobbyists are trying to explain the NRA's positions to, to politicians. And the advertising arm and the fundraising folks, they're really focused on really ginning up support in the grassroots. And sometimes radical messaging works best. And that, that works really well, actually, for the NRA in terms of raising money after Sandy Hook. Fundraising goes through the roof. Membership goes up after Sandy Hook. As the NRA is kind of able to convince its members that its rights are under threat. Um, But there's this big tug of war. Um, I I explained one of the scenes in Misfire is 
the head lobbyist of the NRA at the time, a guy named Chris Cox, watching on television as Wayne Lapierre gives his Sandy Hook press conference. Um, you know, he had not been in the loop about what his organization, which he's the head lobbyist for, was going to do after Sandy Hook. And Wayne Lapierre goes up on stage and basically says that famous line about how more guns in school would be the solution. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the NRA's belief would be that armed guards in schools would be uh, the way to go forward for the organization. And Chris Cox, seeing this on television, not knowing this was coming, just kind of lets out a bunch of expletives and storms out of the room. You know, so there's this big kind of tug of war, and that continues after Sandy Hook to Mansion Toomey, which, as you mentioned, was this gun legislation that was proposed in the wake of Sandy Hook. The NRA initially, there are a lot of lobbyists at the NRA who feel, look, most guns that are purchased in the United States right now have to go through a background check anyway. So it's expanding it to close these small percentages of transactions uh, is really no, no skin off our back. And, and so the NRA kind of negotiates part of the Mansion Toomey bill, actually helps write large portions of it, um, and inserts a bunch of kind of sweeteners for gun owners in the bill. <laughs> but as time, time goes on and uh, the bill gets closer to being voted on, um, they pull out suddenly. They've gotten a tremendous amount of pressure from their right flank. The kinds of people, by the way, which, as we pointed out in the last little bit, that they would deride as nuts and fruitcakes and, and uh, hillbillies and so on. But those are the people who are the most radical and uh, vocal uh, and passionate members of the NRA, and they, that, they create a lot of pressure on, on the NRA's right. And the NRA ends up pulling out of the negotiations and whipping its membership and its uh, supporters against the legislation, dooming it to failure. So in, in effect, they were following the lead of their followers. Yeah. I mean, the, the more you read about the NRA in this book, and what I've really found and was surprising to me, you know, I, I started reporting out this book on the NRA, thinking that the NRA was this efficient and ruthlessly effective organization. You can pull back the curtain and it's, it's totally chaos behind the scenes. It's infighting and there are all these factions grasping for power, this backstabbing, all sorts of politics being played. And at the very center, this, this, this uh, deeply anxious and weak-willed man named Wayne LaPierre. So you, you make reference to something that I find really fascinating is that, that, that not only was mentioned to me their opposition to that kind of a turning point in the debate over gun rules – but also it marked a shift in the overall approach of the NRA moving from um, a battle over gun rights into a broader culture war. Talk to me about that, because that seems to me the real decisive move in recent years of the NRA, which is really has embraced the culture war um, as opposed to simply the nuts and bolts of gun legislation. Well, the NRA previous to Sandy Hook viewed as some of their most valuable strategic partners these moderate Democrats who could support them on gun legislation, right? Enabling them to be bipartisan and weather the storm if it is a Democrat-controlled House or Senate or vice versa, being able to have friends on both sides of the aisle. But after Sandy Hook, it becomes much harder for the NRA to have these alliances, and the, and, and the NRA kind of begins to discard them uh, and double down on just reaching out to conservatives and Republicans. And as part of that, what they decide is that the NRA is no longer just a gun organization. They can be much more successful as a 
as an organization that claims to its membership that they stand between the government and all uh, and the government wanted to take all of its freedoms. Uh, and so the NRA begins begins to develop what's called NRA TV, which talks about all mm-hmm. sorts of things unrelated mm-hmm. to the, the Second Amendment, um, including things like race or other like hot button political issues. And, and it really kind of um, rebrands itself as an organization to cover all sorts of topics unrelated to the Second Amendment. So where where is NRA TV now? Well, it doesn't exist anymore. They yeah. spent they spent tens of millions and millions of dollars uh, on that project, and uh, turns out no one was watching, and that there was hardly any sort of uh, return for the organization. It, it was a it was a real uh, contro- It stirred up a lot of controversy for the organization, generated virtually no money or membership, and uh, people just weren't watching it. Um, but it yes. was extremely costly, and <laughs> yeah. it was one of the reasons why the NRA drove itself into financial ruin. Now, who was responsible for that? Well, Wayne La- LaPierre, ultimately. Yeah. yeah but uh, at the time, you know, I-, I talk about Wayne LaPierre as this kind of weak-willed leader, surrounded by people taking advantage of him, convincing him to do things, uh, and him kind of meekly acceding to all of those. One of those people was this guy named Angus McQueen. He was the advertising uh, the head of the advertising firm that became over many decades symbiotic with the NRA. Um, and Ackerman McQueen basically produced NRA TV, made a lot of money in the process of doing so. I don't think that they disagree in that. Um, and uh, it, it, a lot of money went down the drain through that project. And they had a very nasty breakup, didn't they? I mean, there was a very nasty breakup between uh, Wayne LaPierre and the NRA and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and that PR firm. That's right. I mean, Angus McQueen's, it's very dramatic and a little convoluted here. Angus McQueen's son-in-law becomes the lawyer for some of the NRA's important legal cases and begins to kind of elbow Ackerman McQueen out of the NRA. Now, Ackerman McQueen has spent decades as this very powerful advertising firm and PR firm for the NRA. And his son-in-law kind of comes in, elbows him, elbows him out, as, by the way, Angus McQueen is dying of cancer. Uh, mm. as his mm. as his father-in-law is dying of cancer there's this nice. tremendous family blood view that's playing out inside the NRA as this happens and lawsuits begin to fly um, and, and they get up into this deep legal entanglement uh, that has made a ton of money for the law firm uh, and push the NRA even deeper into financial crisis. So this all comes to a head, or at least it came to a head originally back in April of 2019, where you had some of the members revolting during the NRA's annual meeting over these reports of malfeasance that were building up in the press. Uh, I, I, I want to talk about how much damage there was that was done. There was I remember I was on I was on a show somewhere, I think it was the Canadian Public Radio or something, with uh, one of the NRA flacks and I I was making reference to the uh, loss of membership and revenue, and he was like, no, all of this is lies. Everything is as good as ever. Uh, but your book makes it clear they did take a shot. Uh, there's an organization called Save the Second, Second Amendment, uh, which was a group seeking accountability from the NRA. And they talked to you, and they said that members had been leaving the NRA in droves. It's just a fact that um, that the NRA has lost members. I mean, it's membership right now. Uh, Wayne LaPierre was asked on the stand during their bankruptcy trial how many members they had. It's about where it was five years ago, um, and, and it's certainly declined. Their fundraising, it's public. 
because the NRA is a nonprofit and has to disclose it. They're fundraising dramatically down. It, it's indisputable that what started in April of 2019, this very dramatic conference where members begin to revolt, and Oliver North, remember him from earlier in our sure. conversation, he's the president. He confronts Wayne LaPierre in this very climactic scene in my book where they kind of clash in an Indianapolis hotel suite just days before um, Mike Pence and Donald Trump are expected to speak at their convention. Um, and uh, basically, Oliver North is demanding that the NRA does an internal audit to figure out where all this money is going. And Wayne LaPierre and his uh, and other top officials say no and push Oliver North out of the presidency mm. of the organization. And this all culminates in this extremely public, dramatic members meeting in 2019. It, yeah, I mean, it gives you an indication of the, the climate of the NRA when Oliver North is the voice of, apparently, the voice of, uh, of, of integrity here. So if, for your book, you talk to a lot of rank-and-file members. These are the people who send in the $5, $10, $15 a month, and um, they were paying attention to this. And so you did talk to folks who um, were outraged about, you know, the money, their money, going to the, you know, trips to the Bahama, Lake Como, places like that. Tell me about uh, what kind of feedback you got. Yeah. So the book is the result of more than 120 interviews with people in the, in the NRA universe, right? Like very senior people uh, who have uh, worked closely with, are really close friends with, or formerly really close friends with Wayne LaPierre. Um, so one of the things is that, you know, hey, I'm an NPR reporter. A lot of NRA officials are skeptical of the press, and they're not exactly excited to talk about the inside knowledge that they've accumulated over decades of working at the NRA. But I think one of the most um, compelling reasons for them to talk to me and to tell their stories was that they felt betrayed on behalf of those folks that you mentioned, mm -hmm. who are sending in five, 10, 15 bucks a month, and their you know, some portion of that money is going towards private jets for Wayne LaPierre or Italian menswear. The, a major motivating factor for a lot of these folks was uh, that they felt that Wayne had betrayed the values of the organization uh, and that there needed to be accountability. And that's, that, that exists from, you know, formerly top NRA officials down to the grassroots, which, like you said, there's, there's kind of a revolt happening amongst certain rank and file uh, NRA members who are demanding change in the organization. So it's it's not just Wayne Lapierre. I thought your stuff about his wife is really something. I mean, Susan uh, Lapierre, the first lady of the NRA, is really a real piece of work. You write around the officer power was either innately understood or quickly learned. Susan has absolute control over Wayne on the issues she care about. She luxuriated in that power and was rewarded with perks that would make a corporate executive blush. She used the same makeup artist as Reese Witherspoon and Taylor Swift. Susan has always been a strategic social climber, and Wayne's success as head of the NRA gave her an opportunity to live the life she had dreamed of. So this is part of the story, isn't it? You start off with the wedding, but Susan, um, obviously one of the driving forces behind the, shall we say, the pivot to lifestyle in the NRA. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I talked earlier about how Wayne LaPierre exists at the head of the NRA because he's surrounded by powerful people who have a real incentive to keep him there. And Susan LaPierre is really one of them for all of his character flaws of being a weak-willed person, a deeply anxious person. She's very different than he is. 
she's very bold and assertive and she gets what she wants. And she's, she's, it's a really fascinating world um, here, um, particularly with regards to Susan LaPierre, right? Because she's the head of this uh, shadowy world of million dollar women donors to the NRA. And they have this, they have this kind of mini society there where they rank each other based on brooches and levels and how much money they've given to the NRA. Uh, they rank each other on how closely do you sit to Susan LaPierre at the dinner or, or whatever, you know. Um, it's this incredibly weird world that exists there, which Susan is the head of and which she luxuriates in, and which she has an incredible amount of power. It's this kind of hidden hand in the NRA that no one's really uh, written about or talked about before, but it's cost the NRA a lot of money to kind of execute on her preferences. So you were interviewed by your colleague at NPR, uh, Steve Inskeep, who, uh, who asked you this. Are you suggesting that at least in part, the NRA has become more and more extreme on gun policy because that kept the money flowing in for the private jets and the expense account dinners and the expensive clothes and everything else? Is, is that part of it? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the NRA really, really did well pushing fear to their members during the Obama years. Mm -hmm. Right, that 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 they were super successful in fundraising, super successful in cr increasing membership, and really got fat off of that success. And that's where a lot of the the sort of corruption that uh, that develops actually begins to occur and then expands um, and metastasizes. And what's interesting is that this leads to their greatest success, which is the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Mm -hmm. That uh, they spend more money in support of Donald Trump in that election than even Trump's own super PAC that cycle, more than $30 million. Um, but that leads to this dramatic decline that once Trump is elected, they can't sell that fear to their members. So fundraising drops off a cliff, membership drops off a cliff. Hmm. And then in that financial contraction, all these troubles begin to emerge. Infighting starts as money gets tighter, internal whistleblowers, start to write their memos, investigative reporters like myself start to make headway inside the organization. That's when it all begins its downfall. But this is an important point, though, that trouble at the NRA does not mean the gun rights movement is weakened. I mean, right now they seem um, to have as, as strong a hold on the Republican Party as they have ever had. They have cases in front of the Supreme Court, which may strengthen gun rights movement. So give me your take on that. So the NRA may be shaky, but the sort of Second Amendment gun rights movement, but as strong as ever? You talk to lawmakers, right? You ask them, why do they fear the NRA? Yeah. They're not worried about, I mean, money obviously has an impact, but what the NRA's real strategic asset is, is its members who lawmakers are worried about flooding their phone lines and flooding their inboxes and yelling at them at town halls. That's really what lawmakers are worried about. And right now we have a Democratic House, Democratic Senate, Democratic White House, and no serious conversation about gun legislation. And, and one of the reasons is, even in the NRA's weakened state, its members still exist as a kind of implicit threat against gun legislation, which lawmakers remain concerned about, deeply concerned about. You know, you also, I mean, and this, this I think is the crucial thing. I mean, the money is not insignificant, but it is that mobilization of the members who have been who have been conditioned over decades now um, to be on a hair trigger about any threats to to gun rights. I mean, correct. I mean, they they are still out there. 
One of the interesting things we didn't talk about it in, in, in great detail, the NRA TV, which was a complete you know, financial failure. In a lot of ways, though, it was a little bit ahead of his time, wasn't it, in terms of using the culture war to gin up anxiety and outrage and activism. You think about some of the things that were on NRA TV. They're now standard fare on Newsmax or OAN or Fox News or any of these other YouTube channels out there. So that culture still exists even while the NRA is imploding. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that what they've set in motion almost has a kind of uh, has a trajectory now, which uh, could go on without them. Right? That they've created they've they've created this movement of millions of members. They've certainly changed gun legislation in this country at the state level and and resisted sort of changes at the federal level very effectively. I think there's no doubt about the NRA's effectiveness over the last few decades in changing the just the very nature of the way we talk about guns. You know, we, uh, you mentioned the Supreme Court case about concealed carry. Yeah. Um, 30 years ago, uh, when Wayne LaPierre was just a state lobbyist, only a handful of states allowed concealed carry. And now all 50 states allow it in some way or another. And and the United States is really debating you know, what limitations are permitted, not whether concealed carry should be allowed or not allowed. Um, that, that evolution in the discussion is largely uh, attributable to the NRA. And now they're pushing for, quote unquote, constitutional carry around the country, including open carry, legal open carry. I mean, it's it's like they're not satisfied with the, with the victories they've had. They're pushing it even further. So if you see people walking down the street with a with an AR-15 uh, in some states, that's completely legal to do. Right. I mean, the NRA is certainly not uh, is not done. Um, the, the NRA while it's in its most weakened state, and I, I've described it, it, it is, like like you say, a mortal threat to its existence, right? The New York Attorney General could shut it down, um, you know, and, and a court will have to decide that in, in proceedings that I'll be watching very, very closely over the next year. Um, Do you think that will happen, by the way? I'm not predicting that it will happen, but it's a serious possibility, which is, uh, which anyone should be taking uh, as, as a serious outcome, right? Because uh, there, there's plenty of evidence that the New York Attorney General and reporters like myself have accumulated over the last few years that show, uh, without a doubt, that there's been all this misspending inside the NRA. So the NRA, as a nonprofit, is facing the loss of that status. It's facing uh, the loss of you know, its, its own organization's ability to exist. So stepping back a little bit from just the NRA, let's talk about the overall gun culture. I mean, we live in a country that is awash in guns. We have rising violent crime. You know, one of the things that really struck me over the last several years, starting with, well, not starting with, but I mean, most dramatically Sandy Hook and then later the the uh, the, the mass shooting in Las Vegas is that there's no event that is going to take place that will change the dynamic of gun politics in this country. There is no shock that will change the, the the formula that we've been living under, which is that the gun rights movement will oppose any, even the most incremental change here. I mean, I think that there was perhaps a, a thinking, well, if, if X happened, then we would move toward a more serious response. I can't even imagine that anymore. Is that too cynical? Well, the NRA has just been very, very effective in, in lobbying and creating this movement over the last decade. And I the, 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 one of the questions that I pose in this book is, you know, if there had been even minimally 
competent leadership at the head of the NRA. If it wasn't Wayne LaPierre, but instead someone who uh, had some sense of how to lead an organization of this size, uh, just how different our politics would be, right? And 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 probably in the, in a way that the NRA would want. I, I would assume that that if the Obama years were extremely good for the NRA and they began to slip during the Trump years, will the Biden presidency be good for the NRA? Will they are they looking to be able to uh, you know create that sense of threat that has been so successful in getting members and raising money? Well, you know, typically you'd expect that. Yeah. Um, but the the NRA right now is in such financial and legal crisis that a lot of its members have kind of become deeply jaded by the organization. You talked about Save the Second. Um, uh, that's a member. That's a that's an organization of NRA members demanding transparency and accountability. There are a lot of. I mean, if you read gun forums, if you read kind of where the grassroots is talking, a lot of people are angry with the NRA's current leadership, its executives, and millions of dollars in private jets and lavish meals and exotic vacations. They're not coming back while the while the leadership remains the way it is. Fascinating. The book is Misfire Inside the Downfall of the NRA by Tim Mack, who has covered the NRA for years. And Tim is the Washington investigative correspondent for NPR. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.